Hello, everyone. Welcome back. So, Casey, today is a big day for us.、Mm-hmm. We are talking. Finally, I've been waiting all season for seasons for this topic yeah, yeah, to yeah. come up. We're talking about periods. We're talking about menstruation, and we're talking about all the things that go into it. Yes, and it you know listeners might be like, really, Jamel has been waiting for seasons to、yes. to have this conversation, but absolutely, you really have. And I have to say、um, that preparing for this conversation today with our guests、um, and reading this book that we're going to talk about had me rethink my own experiences.、Mm. Um, and it's kind of I've noticed that it's it's. Challenging for me to even talk about menstruation because the silence and the stigma are so deep,、um, and I'm like, oh wow, I really have had all these experiences in my life, and all these other people who have, and we have never talked about it.、Um, so it's really been kind of an interesting personal journey for me in preparing for this,、um, and it's also very refreshing to hear you as a cisgender young man that is interested, truly interested in talking about these issues. Yes. Well, you know, as we're going to learn about later, we know that like approximately half the population、mm, menstruates. Absolutely. So I think you know, with my privilege, it's really important to understand what does that look like, and what are some of the downsides. You know, when we talk about you know taxes on menstruation、mm. products, when we talk about you know globally women having access to clean water,、mm. when we talk about women missing school and work because of something that happens routinely in their lives, I think about my privilege often as a man. And when I enter into positions of power, like the workplace, and when I interact with women in my life, whether they're my friends, my colleagues, my family members, what does it mean to show up for their full humanity?、Mm-hmm. And a part of that is learning, and taking the time to read, listen, and explore areas in which I know I can help、mm-hmm. and fully understand what's going on. You、um, know, we talk a lot on this podcast about privilege, and that can look in a lot of different ways: race.、Um, Religion, it can look immigration status,、mm-hmm. citizen status, but also gender. And men hold a lot of power, so men are needed to be in this conversation to help fix some of these issues. I love that role modeling that you're doing. Thank、All、you,、right. thank you. Well, and and I say this often, but there is so much for us to talk about today. In part because this is a topic that is so often under, you know, just I mean, there has been a change in the last few years in terms of public conversation. Uh, but man, do we have a, a long ways to go? So there's a lot for us to talk about today. And with us, we have、uh, Bridget J. Crawford, who is University Distinguished Professor at Pace University School of Law, and Emily Gold Waldman, who is also at Pace University.、Uh, she's Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Operations, and also Professor of Law. And they are here to talk about their new book out from NYU Press: Menstruation Matters: Challenging the Law's Silence on Periods. So, Bridget, Emily, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, first of all, we love this book,、um, and I have to say, it's quite a, an accessible and readable、um, book, which is not necessarily, you know, when I think about legal scholarship、um, or actually a lot of scholarship, it's not necessarily, you know, accessible. It's not necessarily so,、um, but really, just a beautiful. 
book. And I would love, I'm very curious about where, you know, your, your journeys as legal scholars and coming together to work on this book, you know, what was sort of the spark for you? Um, you know, what, what set the book off? So I think I'll, I'll take that one. This is Bridget Crawford. I, we, I am a tax scholar by training and I was invited to present at a conference on taxation and human rights. Mm. And in considering the different things that I could write about happened upon the topic of the intersection of menstruation and taxation. But I should back up a little bit why I even knew to look out for that topic. I had been uh, carpooling with another family to take two high school students to and from their summer physics course. And uh, as all good parents do, I kept my mouth shut and my ears open during those carpool times. And I noticed my daughter and her friend talking with great interest about the her peers attempt to get the school to make menstrual products available for free and over the course of of several car rides i i tracked the conversation but but um didn't make the explicit connection Hmm. to taxation until i started thinking about what i would write for the conference wrote a a paper with carla spivak uh, at oklahoma city university school of law and uh as I was writing that paper, presented my work to my colleagues at Pace Law School. Um, and Emily Waldman is one of my colleagues and a valued uh, reader for my other work. Mm. After I presented this work, in which I discussed the fact that there were some lawsuits trying to challenge the tax on menstrual products. Emily uh, asked me afterwards, well, what precisely is the basis for the challenge? And to make a long story short, it's a constitutional claim. And Emily, being a constitutional law scholar with also a deep background in education law, um, uh, we just talked more uh, and, and wrote one article about the constitutional arguments And once we wrote that article, we saw that there were so many more issues. So maybe Emily can talk a little bit more about the other things that hit our radar screen. Yeah, well, first of all, I'll just say it really is a testament to the value of these formal and informal faculty discussions because Bridget presented and exactly as she said, she talked about the tampon tax. She mentioned that there had been some lawsuits. She mentioned that they had sounded in the equal protection clause of the constitution. So then my ears perked up because I teach con law and I was really curious what the argument was. I was really curious whether the argument was that the tampon tax, so basically taxing menstrual products, even when other necessities are tax exempt, like, is that a what we would call in the law, like a facial classification. Like, is it explicit? Could it be seen as treating women worse than men? But it's not technically a tax on women. It's a tax tax on menstrual products. And I know from teaching con law for so long that it was getting into very interesting areas. Hmm. Because when you have some sort of policy that has what's called a disparate impact. So clearly this is having a disparate impact on women. But it's not explicitly saying we're treating women worse than men it can be really hard to win those arguments. 
So we started emailing back and forth. What's the argument? I was really intrigued to see that um, the lawsuit had been brought, but then it had been brought in New York. And then New York basically mooted the whole thing because New York legislatively got rid of the tampon tax. I was thinking, like, what would have happened if this lawsuit had really Mm. gone forward? And on the one hand, I could see that that would be a tough lawsuit to win. But on the other hand, I had ideas about maybe how the argument should be made. So we just started talking more and more. And eventually Bridget said, do you want to write an article together on this? And I did. And we had so much fun writing the article. Hmm. Um, It was such an interesting topic. We worked so well together. It was like the perfect merging of con law and tax. And when we were done with it, like Bridget said, we were like geared up to do more. We were trying to think about what should we look at next? And like one idea after another kept coming to us. And then it was like, wow, we have enough to say we should write a book. And so that's what we did. Hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. It's lovely always hearing about the behind the scenes of like the making of a book and what does it take to get there. But that sounds very interesting. Especially co-authored yes. <laughs> works, I think. And I can I can your specialties in you know tax law and constitutional law and educational uh, focus that all comes through in different ways in the book and I just um, I appreciate the co-authoredness because it adds that you know they're just more minds um, on the project and bringing you two together um, has created this really uh, rich and diverse book um, I mean you talk about I think you have nine chapters in the book each one mm-hmm. with a different focus Um and more to say on all of it, you know? Yeah. And so when we look at your book, you talk about shame and stigma, sexism, cultural norms. So maybe we should start there and talking a little bit more about what does that look like? Well, I, I think <laughs> there's a tax angle, right? And that's how it started <laughs> for us, how the inquiry started. It comes to the conversation about menstruation differently, but here's how the shame and stigma fits in, Yeah. at least in my tax brain. So generally, the way the sales tax works is all products are subject to taxation unless they make it onto the list of exempt items. Well, how does something make it onto the list of exempt items? Legislators or regulators have to be talking about the item right. to put it on the list. Yep. It's a necessity, Band-Aids or uh, in some states, uh, Rogaine or Viagra are considered necessities. Well, I think at the time many of these lists of exempt products were being developed, menstruation wasn't the kind of thing that people wanted to talk about in Mm -hmm. public. Male, female, any gender, um, it wasn't, periods weren't considered the topic for polite conversation. So we Mm -hmm. don't think there was some grand conspiracy against menstrual products, but rather the fact that these products are taxed still in over 20 states was the product of Mm -hmm. this longstanding cultural uh, silence, stigma, and shame around menstruation. Mm And that, I think, was the entry point to seeing that in all sorts of other ways, too. The law doesn't address menstruation, and a big reason is that people don't talk about it. I think one of the really funny things that we noticed that I would not have thought of um, was that today you see sometimes legislators still talking about that stigma and, and silence as a way of actually pushing change forward because they'll bring it up and people are like, please just stop talking about this. That's fine. We'll do it. Right. We just don't want to talk about it, which I thought was so ironic. Like on the one hand, it's it's really too bad yeah. that the stigma and silence persist, but it is kind of funny to think about you can actually get change made because people are just so eager to stop the conversation that they'll agree to it. 
That mm -hmm. I, I love some of those quotes that you all included from from legislators like, oh, no, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll sign. Yeah. It's it's also I love seeing young people. Yes. Take that stigma and shame and invert it for in advocating for themselves. We highlight a group of uh, middle schoolers who asked the head of their school to have menstrual products placed in the restrooms. When they got denied, they held a, a tampon cookie protest mm -hmm. in response, baking cookies in the shape of, of tampons. And, um, and, and that kind of inversion of shame and stigma to say this affects not, not just half the population, it affects the whole population. Because if uh, there are menstruating students in the classroom who mm. can't be either physically or mentally present, then the classroom is less rich for everyone in the room. So let's get students' basic needs taken care of, for example. In the prisoners' rights context, um, it, menstrual products and access to them shouldn't be a way that uh, is a method of control, mm -hmm. shaming, stigma uh, of of people who are detained or incarcerated. That's that's a human rights abuse. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and we are all worse off as a society when those kinds of abuses uh, take place. So let's let's address menstruation related needs for everyone. Yeah, um, I, I love the story of the middle schoolers banding together and baking cookies. That is a really powerful message. And it reminds me of my hometown. You know, after I graduated high school a few years later, um, a group of women got together and decided they, too, wanted free menstrual products in their school. And they petitioned and petitioned and petitioned. And I'm not sure if they ended up getting it, but the, the liveliness was there. Mm. And I don't think many people are aware of how many people cannot afford menstrual products. Yeah. Seriously. Um, and also how, how relatively inexpensive it is for schools and other public institutions and buildings to provide free products, uh, often even less than, than the estimates that they, they came up with. That really surprised me, actually, because the, sort of the clear argument against that is to say, well, um, you know, we can't afford it. Mm. It's too expensive. Um, but actually, you know, what you all point out is that actually it's not. It is is quite doable. One of the things I also thought was interesting was in the past, I think the way schools often dealt with this was there was like a little stash. There was supplies like in the nurse's office. For sure. But, and when you think about it practically though, have that's really not an answer because what's going to happen? First of all, just practically. So someone oh, yeah. is in the bathroom, they need to pay, what are they going to do? You know, how are they going to get to the nurse's office without dripping blood all over the place? Plus then it forces them to speak up where maybe they don't feel comfortable in part because of this silence and stigma, then they're going to what be late for the next class because they have to get all the way to the nurse's office. Like it's so clear that the solution is to just have that stuff in the bathroom when people need it. Absolutely. Yeah. And because, you ahead. know, uh, menstrual products are just as necessary as toilet paper. Uh -huh. We take for granted there's toilet paper in the restrooms. Why aren't all of the products that all people need to participate in daily life available. There's soap, there's water, there's uh, toilet paper, there should be menstrual products too. Yeah, I just, I mean, 
I'm a, a trans man who transitioned in my 30s. So, you know, had a period for two decades. And when I'm thinking back about all of this, uh, which is there's a, an added layer of, of complexity in terms of transness, certainly, and, and gender identity um, and dysphoria. But before that, I just think about how as a, especially like as a, a middle schooler and high schooler, which is such a hard time, I think, to be a human being uh, in general, about how, you know, you're many young women, girls, young people are, who are menstruating are experiencing like so much pain and discomfort and, and also the, the shame and everything else. And we were supposed to pretend like we're totally fine. Like yeah. when you're so, so, not everybody, of course, of course, it's different for everybody, but um, the idea that so many people are out there really just struggling in an, a very intense way, having to pretend that they're fine or just not being able to be present for school, coming up with other excuses, um, but that it all had to be sort of this shameful, quiet thing that you can't talk about. It's funny. One of the things that this book reminded me of was when I was in high school, I had an English teacher, and I don't think this came from any bad intent, but I remember so distinctly she had a policy where you could only go to the bathroom during class once for the entire year. Oh, and so my. I would say, you know, can I go to the bathroom? She'd be like, are you sure you want to use your one time? Oh my God. Now, like, and I remember even then thinking, what if someone says an emergency two times? Like what happens the second time? You just don't, at the time, I don't even think I specifically linked it only to menstruation, but like, yeah. If something else is going on, what are you going to do? Like pee on the floor? Like I, but yeah. it reminded me of it. Like there are all these sort of rigid rules at school. You know, there's so much worry about, you know, someone's going to take advantage and they're going to go to the bathroom when they didn't really need to, to slip out of class. But like, there isn't a recognition that there are all these genuine needs that come up and you can't just always time them to like the three minutes between classes when you're in high school. Right. Hmm. That's such a strange policy, too, especially yeah. thinking that they're high schoolers. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I remember it so intently. And you spend so many hours of your day um, in school. So it's not like, I mean, there's not much time for reprieve of any kind. And I remember- It's hard, like, it's hard to be a teenager in so many ways. It really is. And, and I just remember, I feel like you all mentioned this in the book, like- you know, passing tampons to people like, like doing a drug deal, like in, like, you know, tuck something up your sleeve. And then, you know, it felt very like sort of illicit in ways that the, the young people in activism that you're talking about is really helping push that, that shift in ways that in large, it also makes um, folks of older generations quite, quite <laughs> uncomfortable. I think that's right. But I, I School is where so many of our mindset habits get formed. And we see that same kind of impulse toward invisible bodies in the workplace as yes, well. Yes. Bodies are not meant to be leaky or have needs um, for people who um, don't have the ability to get up and use a restroom when they want to. Um, menstruation uh, can be an obstacle to full participation in the workplace uh, as well. We've seen, um, we've, there have been some legal cases of uh, employees, either uh, an employee wearing a tampon through a body scanner because she worked in a, in a, in a prison. Oh, that example. Horrific. Uh, she was uh, fired from her uh, job because 
She was thought to be concealing uh, contraband. Uh, another woman who um, had unexpected uh, perimenopausal bleeding, uh, she bled on the uh, office um, uh, carpet. And although she cleaned it up, uh, her boss uh, fired her. And that's just absolutely wrong. Uh-huh. It's absolutely wrong to, to, to shame and then uh, exclude from employment uh, at, at, you know, these are people's livelihoods because of a an involuntary biological function. Yeah, one of the things I'm, I hadn't made this connection before, but I'm thinking about that case that Bridget just mentioned, where um, the employee bleeds, and if you remember, it, it happened one time, mm-hmm. and the employer like reprimanded her and said, "If this ever happens again, you're going to be fired." And then it happened again, and it almost makes me think of that teacher again. This teacher wasn't doing it for bad reasons, but this idea that like, well, you were warned, and like you need to control this. Like you can't you always can't. control it. It's right. not a matter of somebody just like not being clean or not trying hard enough. There's like a really sort of weird idea that people can just prevent these things from happening and you can't always. And people, it's very sort of degrading mm-hmm. and tantalizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just otherwise. Like a lack of humanity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like a lack of, and a lack yeah. of basic knowledge. Yeah, uh, you know the you number of people hold, who do yeah, do not know it. that you just cannot hold your menstruation in the way one holds urine. Yeah. Uh, it it can't be done. The number of people who don't know how long a period lasts, um, that periods aren't always regular or predictable, mm. that people don't know how many pads or tampons one needs. I, I, there's a famous example when Sally Ride. Uh, I may not have been said when one of the astronauts went uh, into space, the, the uh, other and the other uh, crew members or the staff asked her, well, how many tampons would, would you need? We'll send you up with a hundred in case you get your period in the very short space mission. That was, I think only going to be a week. Well, hundred tampons is, is a, an extremely it's high number, even for people with heavy bleeding. So, the sheer ignorance, even among mm. people who are otherwise well-educated, is is pretty amazing. But that links to another issue, that sort of basic biology isn't mm. necessarily taught in all schools. And in the schools where it is taught, it isn't necessarily required to be scientifically accurate. So we have a huge information gap uh, related to the stigma and silence. Uh, boys and girls, as if there were only two genders, get separated into different groups uh, for uh, talks about uh, menstruation. And that's the beginning of mm-hmm. of um, some sometimes that can be the beginning of this stigmatization if it hasn't already kicked in. The students absorb that it's not something to be talked about openly. Right. Do you remember what your like? sex ed like in school yeah fourth grade it was more recent for you yeah fourth grade um we talked heavily about the man's body so erections like pubic hair things like that we did not talk at all about women's bodies at all and we were not separated into groups so we were all in the same room oh yeah so you weren't separated but then so then it was like if everyone's together it was just going to be a discussion about about men Yes. And that's what kind of leads to these issues of women being treated like second class citizens throughout this country. You know, we have to learn about men's bodies. We have to learn about men's pleasure. We have to accommodate for men, but we do not have to accommodate for others. 
And when you think about men holding power in this country and politics and policymaking, to not know the science of women biology mm -hmm. is damaging. Mm -hmm. To not have awareness of issues in which maybe half the people in your state are experiencing is absurd. It's absurd. It is absurd. Yeah. Yeah, so um, my sexual education in school, it wasn't long. It was just fourth grade. Um, we, huh. I didn't even get into high school, believe it or not. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the word accommodation. Um, mm. That's something that for us as lawyers is super interesting. Mm. The notion of where do you set the baseline? And if the baseline is men, then yeah. sure, it looks like an accommodation right. um, uh, for menstruation or menopause or other Bio, biologically related processes to be taken into account. But it's not clear why that should be the baseline mm. at all. Right. Mm. We've been thinking about this even more. We've started to do work on menopause as well. Oh, great. Can really come up. And I think one of the things that I've seen too in thinking about this is how related all of this is. Menstruation, menopause, then sort of taking an even broader lens and thinking about things like pregnancy, mm -hmm. breastfeeding, right? That all of these are processes that are connected to the reproductive system. And often they actually give rise to some similar needs. Um, and we've, in one of our articles we talk about, we do, the law sort of thinks about them as accommodations. Here's the norm and then everyone else is getting an accommodation. But maybe if right. we thought more broadly in general about flexible policies, we wouldn't have to think so much about like, well, here's the norm. And now this person is so different from the, the norm that they need a special accommodation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like, um, I mean, so some of the readily accessible frameworks are disability, certainly, mm -hmm. um, and sex and gender discrimination. And it's a great point. Like, what would society look like if, if it were built for, you know, all people's bodies, and not just? And I think about public restrooms all all the time. Um, as a, as a trans person, I remember um, learning about just just how there weren't restrooms women could use in public spaces until like, you know, relatively recently, more recently than I would have thought. And then the the example with. Um, Tammy Duckworth um, in the Senate after, you know, having her child and not not being able to access a restroom anywhere close to the Senate chambers, like w within the last decade. And I thought, wow, you know, you, you can really tell who society is designed for by, you know, are there, like you can only be out in public space as long as you can be without a bathroom. Um, and if there's not, if there's not a space where you can access that bathroom, whether, you know, as a trans person, um, as a woman, as someone with disabilities, you can only be out in public for that, that length of time. And you're, it, the underlying message is that, you know, you can't participate fully in, in civic and public life. Hmm. One of the things I've been thinking about, too, in terms of the lack of understanding about the reproductive system is obviously right now in my mind, I have abortion mm, a lot. I'm thinking about, I mean, there's so many issues and problems with what's going on right now, but some of the laws that you see being passed reveal such a lack of understanding mm. about biology, you know, things where you have 
laws being passed and people pointing out, well, wait a minute, that would mean that somebody who has an ectopic pregnancy <laughs> can't get surgery that they literally need or they will die. Issues with right. people not being able to potentially get care for a miscarriage because for a doctor to respond to the miscarriage, then there's concern that it will look like the doctor is performing an abortion. Not mm-hmm. at all to say that they shouldn't be able to perform abortions, but all of these sort of mm-hmm effects that I think people who are writing the laws don't even understand yes. the biology enough to realize what is going on. And so you see all these links across all these different processes that there is so much silence and such a lack of awareness, and it can be really dangerous. Mm. Yeah. As legal scholars, this must be a very interesting time to be working mm-hmm. and watching what's happening across the country in terms of legislation being entered into bills and into law right? Um, that don't even have clear basis on science. Yeah. It, it's really, I think it's really horrifying. Mm. The, um, but that again goes to this notion of equal citizenship. If we all bodies and the decision we make about our bodies um, then how can we claim equal citizenship mm-hmm. um, if 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 someone with an ectopic pregnancy cannot seek to terminate that pregnancy and instead must die because of it, mm-hmm. then they are not being treated as an equal citizen. Um, if someone uh, has is is a rape victim and is forced to uh, bear a child, how is that person being treated? Um, with dignity and respect and with due regard to their liberty. Um, so the body is the battleground mm-hmm. uh, of these. Uh, this is more than a cultural war. This is a, 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 a war on, on all fronts, and it's a war on half of the people in the world and their ability to be members of society. Yeah, Jamil often, well, you're always saying, listen, if men yes, had periods, the world would look a lot different. If men had babies. Yes, yes. People were pregnant. Would, yeah, you would be able to have parental leave by the boatloads. You mm-hmm. know, people would take time off. It would be not a thing of shame, but a thing of competition. <laughs> um, it would look different. It would. It would look different. If more men were able to be pregnant, then, you know... There would be access to abortion. Um, I do believe it would look a lot different. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it's not um, the bodies of uh, people with uteruses uh, and ovaries that are the problem. Why aren't we, if we're focused on bodies, why aren't we talking about the bodies of those who produce sperm? Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. sperm is that which should be regulated. Anita Bernstein at Brooklyn Law School is working on a fantastic book right now. Uh, about the ways in which um, we might fruitfully turn our focus to sperm as the sort of harmful vector uh, Mm. here. But why is sperm not being regulated? Mm. Why aren't all men being uh, stripped of their ability uh, to control their reproduction instead of people with uh, uteruses and ovaries and the ability to bring, uh, to gestate a child, the world would look very differently. So I agree with you completely. And of course, 
you're echoing Gloria Steinem's famous mm-hmm. essay about mm-hmm. if men could menstruate. You know, people would talk about being a three pad man. Yeah, their periods were so big, um, uh, and 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 those are those are important perspectives. You know, these. You know, you're mentioning about regulating sperm. This really is sort of stretching because this these cultural norms are so deep that uh, I mean, it's really sort of it's stretching the imaginary, um, truly, totally. and not just in a way that like as a thought experiment, but also to question like what are the practices that we're doing now and to to absolutely denaturalize you know the way that society has been around. Um, uteruses, menstruation, menopause. Um, I remember Michelle Obama, um, I don't know if she still has a podcast, but she did. And she had a bunch of her girlfriends together to talk about menopause. And I remember hearing that and being like, oh my gosh, I remember seeing a book on my mom's bedside table called like The Silent Passage. And I was like, oh no, that <laughs> sounds awful, you know? Um, and and just thinking like, huh, there are these things that we know about and then we know not to talk about them. And then when we don't talk about them, then we can't make changes. And one thing that I, that I was heartened by in the book is that, um, I mean, there are some legislators in particular who have just been real um, fighters and there have been legal successes. So I wonder if y'all could talk about some of the, the wins that we've seen in the legal arena. Sure. I'll give some. And then, Bridget, do you want to go first? I go first. Well, well let, I, I hate to always talk about tax, but let's talk about on the tax front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because it's the most visible. Sure. And in, in some ways, it's the most tangible. It's, it hits our pocketbook, so we understand it. Um, uh, due to um, fabulous activists, uh, period equity, period, uh, grassroots activists, legislators a- across the country, um, the tampon tax has been repealed in several states. So um, uh, right now, the majority of states still impose uh, a tax on menstrual products. But we've seen extraordinary movement and success since 2016 when the first lawsuit was brought in New York. So in a very concrete, specific way, um, there has been a discrete sea change um, in several states and that's the most visible and most obvious. Some people will say, ah, that's just, you know, small change. But I, I think it's not small change. Mm-hmm. There are states that rely on this money for their budget and eliminating the tax is an important step toward equality. It's a visible manifestation, but certainly an important one. Um, and, and so I would I'd start by naming that. But certainly that's not the only place where we've seen movement. Right. And I think another reason why it's not just small change is we talk about in the book, the tax is somewhat of a gateway issue, Mm -hmm. right? Where once you start thinking about that, then you see other places where law needs to change. So a number of states have now passed laws that require their public schools to provide free menstrual products. We've also seen progress in terms of prisons. So um, the Federal First Step Act requires that in federal prisons, um, menstrual products be made available and Some states have also followed suit in terms of their own state jail. So that's another area. Then you have sort of these different municipalities doing different things. So one of the things we write about is Brookline, Massachusetts has become a municipality that provides free um, menstrual products in their public buildings. And what was interesting was that that was actually sparked by high school students editorial in the student newspaper that then someone in the town government saw and said, yeah, like, let's do this in Brookline. And then, of course, internationally, 
there's been a lot of progress, mm-hmm. right? And so Scotland is like the high point example in terms of making menstrual products um, free for people who need them. On the federal level, we've seen a, a Congresswoman Grace Meng, Democrat of New York, uh, really the nation's leader in menstrual equity. Uh, some legislation she wrote has been enacted in different parts of legislation so that now um, uh, flexible spending accounts for those who are Mm -hmm. lucky enough to have them, health savings accounts, can be used to buy menstrual products. FEMA funds, disaster relief Mm -hmm. funds can be used to provide medical uh, menstrual products to those in need. The the place where there's a glaring, glaring um, need is for recipients of uh, SNAP and WIC benefits, what we commonly call food stamps. Food stamps cannot be used to buy menstrual products. Hmm. Um, And that means many people um, are not able to meet their, their basic needs related to menstruation through federal benefits. And so we see um, a continued period poverty uh, among those folks as, as well, persistent uh, uh, poverty without being able to use government benefits. And I'd love to see that change. Mm. There are also, um, you know, limits to legal progress. Like, of course, like if you, if we have laws that are enacted that are um, progressive, equitable, um, but you don't have compliance with those because, you know, there's, there's not buy-in, there's uh, resistance against it, like compliance you talk about a lot as a, as a big issue, like wonderful, pass these laws. But if when we go into these prisons, are they actually following the law? Um, or are schools actually upholding their end of the bargain? Like what's it actually look like um, in practice? And then I also think about, um, I saw recently that, that Spain passed a menstrual leave policy, um, which is amazing. And I was talking with... Uh, a member of the podcast team about that. And, and she, she sort of shook her head and was like, Oh no, you know, um, that might mean, uh, well, first of all, would people use it or would there be social pressure not to? And second of all, would, uh, would that just mean that that would that harm women in terms of employment and be like, well, and promotion. Yeah. yeah. Like let's just hire this dude because I know he's not going to take any of this leave. Um, so anyway, I wonder about some of these limits to, you know, what you've seen. And, and you talk about menstrual leave as sort of like the, the the least likely thing to happen in the United States. Yeah, we don't think it's going to happen. I'm curious what you think, but we don't think it's going to happen. And in the book, we talk about, we looked at this whole study in terms of different people's reactions to it, right? Where people think it's menstrual leave. I think one, a big sort of overarching reason why we think it's not going to happen and would be unpopular is it seems like more of a zero sum game right? Like giving people free menstrual products or removing the tampon tax, everyone sort of accepts, yes, like people need products. They don't feel like it's taking something from them. Whereas when you have menstrual leave policies, there's the potential at least for people to think, well, like if that person isn't here, who's going to do her work that day? I'm going to have to. Or like that person's just taking advantage. She didn't really need the day off. And like, hey, what about me? I would like a day off for whatever I have going on with me. So it has a lot more potential to provoke bad feeling. Mm-hmm. Not to say it's, you know, in theory, a bad idea, but when we thought about it, we can see why it's much less politically sort of palatable than something like, oh yeah, let's make that tax exempt. People don't 
think, oh, that's going to have a negative effect on me. You know, yes, there's this tiny monetary effect that maybe is shared by everyone, but that's so diffuse. Mm. It doesn't feel. There's some interesting research um, that shows that uh, men uh, believe that menstruation is associated in many cases with extreme pain and debilitation, but that they also in very high proportion believe that people who menstruate are faking it. Um, so the, that those two things exist side by side, this notion that menstruation is, it, it can be painful and, and for some people debilitating. And I think Emily and I would also point that out with respect to menopause. Um, but that they also uh, think women uh, and others who menstruate are faking it, ah! well, then menstrual leave has a huge ability to backfire sure. in the yeah. same way that we used to see that teachers had to step down from their teaching positions in grade schools, high schools, when they became uh, pregnant. Our, our employers going to be less likely to hire folks who menstruate or have the potential to menstruate or to go through menopause. That's half the population right there. Yes. Um, I think it's a very interesting point that you bring up that men, you know, believe that it really hurts to menstruate, but also believe the person's faking it. Mm -hmm. It's like, how can the ideas sit in (laughs) the mind? I I have seen it a lot. I have. There's a lot of work to do with men. I think often these conversations need to happen in many circles between men and talking about misogyny and talking about where these feelings come from and where we get these values from. Mm-hmm. Um, these are deep-rooted values. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one. Also, I think about in the United States as a society, we often vote against our own best interest. Mm-hmm. You know, we choose not to have easier work lives. We choose not to have a more family-centered country. We choose to allow others to suffer. Mm. That's what we choose in this country. The amount of resources we have as a nation, the amount of money we pay in taxes, the amount of hours the average American works, we should experience better lives. We should not want just better lives, not only for ourselves, but for our colleagues and our neighbors. And so when we talk about something like a, like time off from menstruating, instead of the reaction of, oh, what about me, Dan? What about me? Mm. What about the experiences of your colleagues? Right. You know, like, why does it always have to be so individual? Like, just, just or like, if if you get something, that means I'm losing something. Some, yeah, I'm losing something. Mm. Right. That's the zero 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 sum game analysis. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking from the practical perspective, as lawyers, we think sort of the most palatable solutions will be those that don't involve. Um, winners and losers. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we step back from the practical lawyering to uh, the visionary lawyering mm-hmm. or the visionary justice that all of us mm-hmm. um, can strive for, that's where we have the opportunity to really rethink work, to rethink education, to rethink um, the, the mass over-incarceration in this country. Um, so there's the practical reasons that we think zero sum solutions aren't aren't right, but um, put 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 the practical aside for a moment. And and what would life look like if we embraced everyone's full humanity? We we come at it in this book through the lens of menstruation, uh-huh. but I think the larger question that you've raised is is important. 
that society would look very different. Maybe the pandemic has nudged us in some ways mm-hmm. toward rethinking work, but not enough. Not enough. I, um, so I have, but actually by the time this episode comes out, I'll have my first baby, my first child. Uh, my partner's pregnant. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and so I've been navigating, um, trying to figure out uh, how to take parental leave. Um, how does that work? What, what's, you know, I, I won't talk specifically about what's available and what's not, but, you know, we, we can do better. And I also learned in the process of thinking about this that um, even when men have paternity leave, they don't take it. You know, so I, that's what I think is interesting about these leave questions um, is like in such a hyper competitive uh, work culture like we have in the United States, like how many people have all this sick time? They don't even take it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's always this like there's there's sort of pressure against it. And then so, I mean, I'm when I'm considering, you know, wanting to have time to bond with a new child, which is so important to me. I also know that I'm impacting my tenure case in doing that. Right. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I'm making that choice knowing that. But it, life doesn't have to be that way. Yes. And when you even look at like all this unlimited PTO, pay time off, mm. folks statistically are using less than that, using less of that than they would if they had uh, a limited number of paid time off. Interesting. You know, I think when we're working, we have this fear. If we're not there, we won't get promoted. We won't get raises. We won't get bonuses. So we have to work as much as possible. We can't use the resources provided for us mm-hmm. in our contracts. We can't use that time off. We can't. We can't take care of a sick family that might member. Make you look weak. Makes you, know. you look weak. Yeah. Yeah. You can't bond with your child. And what kind of life is that, right? I when know. you miss your child's first laugh, when you miss your child lift their head up for the first time, when you can't go visit and be with a sick family member. When you can't vacation and travel and make memories, Mm -hmm. what is the whole point of working? Well, and all of that, um, I I think, invites the other question um, about the extraordinary number of employees who don't even have access to personal time off. Yes. uh, And the decline of the labor movement in this country and the precarity uh, of the so-called gig economy. Mm. um, That 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 conversation... um, we we can enter those concerns into the conversation as well that all of these things are related mm-hmm. um, so we have we have mixed feelings about menstrual leave uh, and or any potential menopause leave related to shame stigma and mm. um, and who's going to take it gender roles all of those things yeah okay so we also we've been talking a lot recently about technology um, and of course there's uh, uh, a tech and big data, you know, menstruation really is so interesting as a lens. It really can touch all aspects of, yeah. of a yeah. human being um, in, in our contemporary society. And one of those, of course, is tech companies, big data. And I am a little embarrassed. I didn't know about this, but I didn't know that Bluetooth tampons and Bluetooth enabled uh, cups, Diva cups uh, were a thing. And I mean, I they're not about... widespread. They are not widespread, but certainly there is a, a huge uh, interest there. And, and that but that's also part of what we call menstrual capital. Yes. Right. That they're where there is ability to profit from menstruating bodies. 
um, the market will step in. And that's not bad. That's not necessarily bad, but we have to be mindful of it. Uh, certainly, we know that period trackers yes. um, mm-hmm. uh, can share your data, very private data, without your consent. The last time you had uh, sex, in what position, what type of period flow you had. Um, and that relates to something Emily talked about earlier with some of these um, anti-abortion laws. Uh-huh. If, uh, if, if you have a period tracker on your phone and you show a missed period, um, will, could that be evidence used against you? Yeah, I saw after that decision leaked, I was seeing on Twitter and in other places, people yeah. saying like urgent, like delete your period tracker from your phone immediately, especially, you know, if you live in one of the states that has now prohibited abortion, because it could be used to try to determine whether you got yeah. pregnant and then were no longer pregnant. Yes, I, I was it, saying the same thing. The possibility of discrimination mm-hmm. uh, against pregnant employees. Um, oh, you know, right. if, if it looks like you're trying to get pregnant, are you not going to be the one that's eligible for the promotion? Could an employer take that into account? And there are employers that give um, advantages to employees. You can be entered into a raffle if you share certain of your health tracker information. Oof, right. That's that's pretty scary. That is um, we see in the UK some companies offering a menopause-related benefit that you could uh, log on to this app and have access to a doctor or a medical platform with specialties uh, in uh, aging and menopause. Well, if you're showing a lot of symptoms uh, related to menopause, brain fog or hot flashes, do you really want that information to be potentially shared with your employer? I think a lot of people might have second thoughts. Yeah, I've been hearing, you know, on social media as well about women making these apps with secret emails and using secret names to try to keep the function. I've also seen people talking about making sure the app is not hosted in the United States. I've seen people talking about it, finding an app that's hosted in Germany, um, trying to find other unique ways of still having access to technology, but also their privacy. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's time to have conversations. Well, I think it is time to have conversation around privacy and legislation when it comes to tech and your data and owning mm-hmm. your data and having privacy over yes, that. Yes. I recently, I mean, I had a flip phone until a few months ago um, to give you a sense of my relationship to technology and, and the, just the surveillance and and how useful so many of these tools are and you know, they're so often free, except they're not free. They're in exchange for our very valuable and very personal data that uh, doesn't, that we, we don't own it. Um, and we don't necessarily know how it's being used. And all of that, that whole world is, is moving so rapidly. And then, you know, things like legal protections or, or consumer knowledge, like we're not, we're not keeping pace with those changes. Mm-hmm. And another thing I love about the book is the global mm-hmm. context as well. So often in the United States, we only think about the United States. That's right. But this is a problem globally. When you think about women having access to clean drinking water, when you think about what does it mean to have menstruation products in other countries and rural areas, are people able to go to school, go to work? Mm-hmm. Um, I have traveled before. And I did do, as you know, I did a project where I flew to Malawi, Africa, and I lived in the village for a period of time, working with education to increase education for um, women in the village. 
And it was a very lovely, wonderful experience. But one of the things that was keeping women from that village from attending any middle school, high school education was menstruating. Mm. They weren't able to go to school for that week. And so this this is a global problem as mm-hmm. well, not mm-hmm. just a U.S.-based problem. And the book provides a little bit of context for that. Mm-hmm. The pandemic also revealed how many uh, ways menstruation impacts daily life. If you can't leave your home because of a stay-at-home order to dispose mm. of menstrual waste in a culturally uh, appropriate manner, if you can't access water, if maybe you don't have a toilet in your home, um, a, a stay-at-home order will impact you differently. Hmm. And the other piece, uh, this is probably the last thing we can fit in. Really, the book, there's so much. Oh, yeah, the- this could be an 18-part series. <laughs> it could be. But the, the talk about um, the environment and health and safety and regulation of what is in products, um, thinking about yes, massive chemicals. amounts of waste, chemicals, and environmental justice as part of this conversation in terms of, of human rights, too. I mean, truly touching every... Mm-hmm. every angle. So what are some of the, the things that, that folks, um, I'm imagining that people listening to this conversation are like, oh man, light bulb, light bulb, light bulb. I never thought about that. What are some things um, that we should highlight in terms of uh, environmental concerns, whether we're talking about chemicals or we're talking about um, you know, climate, waste, things like that? I think one of them from a health perspective is just the unbelievable lack of basic knowledge we still have about the safety of products. There's just been so little research on safety concerns in terms of chemicals that are in these products that are going inside people's bodies. It's frightening how little research there is. And this is another parallel with menopause, just how much more research is really needed from a scientific perspective and health perspective. Mm-hmm. There, there is some legislation trying to get greater consumer disclosure But disclosure isn't necessarily enough. And that links to our tech discussion. Yeah, apps have privacy policies, but people don't necessarily understand them. That's just a a, a, a disclosure isn't enough. Uh, We need a law that guarantees the safety of these products. Um, And while I think our initial impulse is to cut down on um, plastics for sure in these products, We also have to understand how if the technology and distribution lags, um, then eliminating or bans on single-use plastic could disadvantage uh, folks in certain countries where they don't have applicator-free tampons or uh, organic cotton tampons. So we um, are exploring issues of of private procurement. Hmm. What would it look like if entire industries... Uh, banded together and said only certain kinds of menstrual products could be made available in schools or prisons, for example, um, then then the norms of, of manufacture and distribution might change as well. Huh. Just in the way that in New York State, for example, only certain clean and green products can be used to clean schools. What if only certain biodegradable, mm, 100% organic cotton, non-bleached uh, cotton without certain chemicals. What if those were the products required to be provided in schools or in jails, et cetera? How could we, we harness the power of, of law in that way? 
this is good. I feel like we have been reimagining all our reimagining. Yeah, this word, the visionary justice um, is, I think, a good way to put it um, in terms of the work that you all are doing. Not not only the visionary piece, but also the, the sort of practical on the ground dealing with our current situation. Um, but this, you know, Emily, Bridget, thank you so much for, for this book and for being on the podcast. I'm thinking about, I was thinking about this this morning, um, about my middle school self. You know, I'm a middle school girl who has a period who, does, I mean, I, like, I'm just imagining that person, imagining now being on a podcast and actually talking about periods. Also as a man, that's a, a separate point. She couldn't have imagined that either. Um, but I just... I just think it's a testament both to to activists um, and also to um, to work of scholars like like you all to uh, make it possible for us to have these conversations because truly I think that public discourse yes makes especially in an area like menstruation where that has been so lacking I mean we can't under underestimate the importance of these conversations yes it's refreshing to have academic work like this. That is so thoughtful um, and needed in today's societal conversation. So congratulations on your book and we thank, thank you. Thank you again. And thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Yeah.